Hi, my name is Eric Riven. It's the host of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting true life tales of crimes, criminals, and tragedies throughout history. Of all the vanishing hitchhiker stories out there, I have to admit that the one that has always intrigued and fascinated me the most was about Resurrection Mary. I even went so far as to go to Chicago a few years ago with the sole intention of tracing her route, and I drove up and down Archer Avenue for some sign of her. I looked for a distraught young woman in a white party dress, lovely with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a pair of dancing shoes. She'd been reported seen dozens of times over the years, all the way back to the 1930s. An ethereal figure, looking cold, desperately searching for a way home. Sometimes seen from a distance, sometimes even getting into a car with some poor soul who had no idea who he'd just picked up. So where did she come from? Legend has it she'd spent the night dancing away at the Willowbrook Ballroom on a chilly winter's evening but had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend and decided to find her own way home. But tragically, she was struck by a car not far along. And ever since, her ghost has been trying to find its way home. I drove the miles down Archer Avenue and even to the Presbyterian Cemetery where it's been said that she was buried. I walked about the graves, searching for some sign that she was real. Mary Begovi, who died in a car accident near the Chicago Loop in 1934, was the focus of my interest, as it has been for dozens of others who have made the pilgrimage to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales of a vanishing hitchhiker in American lore. I studied the bars of the gate of the cemetery, examining them for her handprints. Legend has it were seared into the metal. Was she trying to get in or trying to get out? Of course, there is no definitive answer, no proof for a historian such as myself. I never saw her, but I didn't need to. The thrill of the possibility was excitement enough. It doesn't. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus from my dad to, yeah. to yeah. Dallas. Mm-hmm. For One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, a my dad, a church, a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and rules say about us as humans. We want to take just a quick brief moment to tell you about our new project that'll be popping up in your feed soon as you know we really enjoy recording the show it's been a lot of fun for us and it started as like a hey why don't we do this and it's turned into an all-consuming thing and so since that happened we decided we should you know do more of it and we're trying something new a serialized storytelling podcast it's going to be an offshoot of the Just a Story Prime, as we started calling this one, and it's going to be set in a dime museum. Yeah, and so it'll definitely be in a similar vein to what our show is, and you'll just have to keep an eye out for it and 
And another second, just to thank all of our new followers, our new listeners, everyone that's reached out to us on Twitter, and also has rated and reviewed. Yes, and if you've not rated and reviewed, I'm going to send Edmund Kemper to get you. Oh, well, mm. <laughs> you'll see why that's so bad in just a bit. I'm just kidding. I love you all. Well, thanks for listening. So today we're going to be talking about a extremely classic uh, urban legend called The Vanishing Hitchhiker. Hmm, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. That rings some bells. Not Catholic bells. This is one of those stories that is on every kind of top ten urban legend list. Because it has been around for a while. You know, I actually read a lot of books about folklore and urban legends when I was a kid. In like middle school and high school. And the first one I read was called The Vanishing Hitchhiker Hmm. by... uh, Jan Van Brum. Yeah, who's got some great books out if you want to read more on this topic. But spoiler alert, we're probably going to talk about them. Yeah, like all of them. So let me tell you, when I first came across this legend, I had a sheltered childhood. Not for lack of trying, but I did. And so when I got to college, I was taking a folklore class. And my professor's name was Soli Otero, and she was amazing. And then my section leader was named Cherry. She's this wonderful lady. And we walked in one day to class, and she starts recounting this story as if it's fact with no announcement at all, and just deadpans her way through it. And she's this amazing storyteller, and she, you know, says that her daughter picked up a hitchhiker, and she came back, and, like, she loaned her this LSU sweatshirt is what it was. That was the article of clothing. I remember it very specifically, and she's like, and the next day, she went to the cemetery, and her LSU sweatshirt was resting on the grave. And it was not just me. The entire class like had tears in their eyes. And we were all like so moved by this incredible story. And then she was like, happy Halloween. There is an urban legend for your celebration. <gasps> I've been duped. So I have a very clear memory of how impactful this story can be when told right. Yeah, and that really is the definition of an urban legend. Someone tells it like it happened to their friend and there are these authenticating details that make it even more realistic. And, you know, if this was done in here in Austin, it would be a UT sweatshirt or something Mm -hmm. like that. So this story has been around for a very long time. How long is a long time? Well, that's a great question because this story has in a way been told for centuries and there's there were a lo- cars centuries ago i'm pretty sure yeah exactly there's a lot of debate among folklorists which i'm sure is very rousing uh there's debate between folklorists about everything that's pretty much what they do and i just always picture fisticuffs definitely yes there is a similar version of this story that is centuries old about vanishing ghosts And ghosts really have always been, around in folklore, of course, ghosts have always been involved in cautionary tales. Cautionary tales? Yeah, so think of, like, A Christmas Carol. So they're, like, spiritual special helpers. Right, they can come and warn you about something. In the 1900s, around the Victorian era, is when stories changed, when these ghosts appeared and you didn't always know that they were ghosts. So these people appear normal. They have access to hidden knowledge or supernatural knowledge. They can appear at will. And I guess following that line of logic, they can vanish at will. And you can even take this story all the way back to biblical times. So in Acts of the Apostles, 
From the Bible? The Bible. Okay. St. Philip was picked up. I guess he was hitchhiking. I don't know if he had his thumb out or if he was showing a leg or what. But he was picked up by an Ethiopian chariot driver. They got to talking. He was preaching the good word. They pulled over at the Ethiopian's request. He baptized him. And then he vanished. Who did? Philip? Yes. Philip vanished? Yes. I don't know this story. I know all the Bible stories. I was like the champ at VBS when I was a kid. I don't know this story. This is some Catholic crap. (laughs) So you can see it goes way back. So we had a description of what the story was. And the story always has a lot of similar pieces. You know, someone's driving, usually at night. It's usually a man. Can be a couple. And... It's almost always that they pick up a female hitchhiker. Or St. Philip. Although sometimes, especially in 1972 and 73, it was a male hitchhiker. Interesting. Who probably looked a lot like Chris Christopherson. Beard. And ate organic food. Yep. Beard. Long hair. And it was Jesus. Because Jesus was a Capricorn. Yeah, I love it. This is at the same time that there was a big religious revival among American campuses. Yeah, and that actually makes sense because there was a lot of fear at this time, and we'll talk about why later. Yeah, and so after this, they're driving home. The girl hitchhiker gives the driver an address. He brings her there, and one of two things can happen. When they get near pulling up, he looks back, and she's gone. Without stopping the car, without the door opening, in some way that indicates that there is some magic happening and then in another circumstance she borrows a jacket or something like that and the next day he goes back to get his jacket back that he let this poor hitchhiking girl borrow and the mother answers the door and begins to weep says that her daughter died a year ago yesterday and the driver not believing her goes to the cemetery to see the grave and finds his jacket hanging on the gravestone. Okay, so those are the identifying elements of this tale. They're used in what folklore is called tale typing. And so you have an obvious A and B version here. You have the one where she just ghost, for lack of a better word. Now that kids are saying that, and it's cool. Which probably means it's not cool if I know about it. And then you have the one where, where he gets to have evidence. Where he gets his experience verified. Oh, there's proof there. And some people think that that has become the more popular version as we've become more jaded. Because we look for proof. We want scientific proof of everything. Our friends at the Psychical Research Society would love to have this happen to them. Yes, so they could just see that jacket. There is another variant that is very similar to this. In a lot of places where this urban legend is told, this is a variant amongst it where they'll be out at a dance. And this guy meets this lovely girl in a white dress. I dance the night away, I'm sure under the stars or something. He likes her a lot, offers to drive her home. And then the next... Aw, shucks. Yeah, it's cute. And then the next day he wants to go and see her again. And that's when he finds out that she's actually dead. In that particular version of the story, there's usually additional information that comes to light that the girl actually died on her way home from the dance. And she's sort of repeating that last journey. Uh, Trying to find her way home. And really, that's what all the girls are doing. That's why he has the address to go back to where he finds her mother. The vanishing one we have the least information about. It seems like these girls are stranded at the point from which they were departing and making a continual effort to get home. So let's look and see where 
these stories are most prevalent. There are a lot of famous vanishing hitchhiker stories around the country. Yeah, every town worth its salt has come up with some disappearing girl to be sad about. And so one of the most famous ones is Resurrection Mary in Chicago. That's such a great name. It really is. And the story follows the same story we've discussed. and But there is a very specific location. It's between the O. Henry Ballroom, and that's what it was called at that time. It's now called the Willowbrook Ballroom. And the Resurrection Cemetery in Justice, Illinois. And usually she's picked up either at that dance hall or in between those two points and the tail goes forward. Is she <clears> one <throat> of the ones that leaves a souvenir or does she vanish? Or does oh, she does both. So okay. that's the interesting thing about this story is that in these places where there is a specific figure, n- figure and name, the story is still told in all the different ways. Right, so it still has all the types, but it just has a central figure. Well, and this story has been credited as being told since 1939. Wow, that's a long time to keep telling the same story. And people say it's actually based on a real person. Of course they do. And so there's Marie Bragovi, and she was 21. She was killed in an automobile accident in 1934 on her way to a dance. And she was wearing a white party dress, and these figures are usually seen in all white, very pure, innocent girls. And, like I said, she's picked up between those two points, normally at about 1.30 a.m., which is a common closing time of ballrooms at that time. So she's picked up right after the dance would have ended. Yes. Had she attended, because she died on the way to it? She did. Well, the real person died on the way to it. Okay. That people credit as the real person. And she always asked for a ride to the cemetery. Which is not creepy at all. No, not at all. Like, if I picked up a random girl in a white dress, and she's like, can I please go to the cemetery? I'd be like, yeah, babe, of course. I gotcha. And I've got to throw a Texas version in as well. Because everything happens in Texas. And there's a Lady of White Rock Lake in Dallas. Oh, I know White Rock Lake. Right, we used to go there when we were in Dallas for a short period of time. Yeah. Similar story, except she's picked up on the lake. She's wearing a you know white dress of some sort, but she's wet. Well, that's unfortunate. Whenever she vanishes, she leaves... A puddle. Exactly. Really? <laughs> kind of a wet backseat. And again, this has been told since the 30s. That's interesting that both of these tales sort of got legs, as it were, like around the same time. Well, it's around that time when boys and girls were going in cars and going to mm-hmm. dances and... Uh, This is another story that has a real person credited to it. It's associated with an actual, verifiable, historical figure, correct? Right, and so Miss Louise Ford Davis is who it's credited with, and on Friday, July 5th of 1935, Miss Frank Doyle found a suicide note left by her sister. So she called the police, they rushed over to White Rock Lake, hoping to stop her from killing herself, but they were too late. Ain't it always the way. Detective Brian uh, reported in the, at the time in the daily Dallas Times-Herald that he was driving along the Garland Road, turned onto the lake road, and shortly afterward saw Miss Davis's head bobbing in the water. Now, does she have a usual route that she travels as well? There are some versions where she's always picked up at the lake and where she does ask for a specific address that would have been related to one of the women that's credited as the real person's family. 
Interesting. So both of these girls, one of them is trying to get to the cemetery where her body is, which is morbid, but gives her a great name. And then one of them's trying to get home. Or to safety or to family or something similar. So why we tell the story is highly debated among folklorists. Mm, as most things are. You know, some people just say it's a cautionary tale against about picking up hitchhikers. What I mean, what bad result occurs from them picking up the hitchhiker? Nothing happens. All right. Like, yeah, so I, think, I don't buy that. Yeah, I, I think it's a service read. I think best. it's a very. I think it's garbage. And I'll say it. We're calling you out. Some people say it is just a story to validate tales of supernatural ghosts. We have EMF detectors for that. Come on. Definitely. And some people say it's something to just show us that death is maybe not the end of life. To reassure us that there's something in the afterworld. Yeah, it sounds awesome. You just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. That's fingers crossed. No, I don't like that either. Keep trying, keep trying. What does Dundee say? What does Dundee say? So Dundee's is one of our favorite folklorists and he's a Freudian folklorist. Yeah, I mean, could you be any good than that? He has a lot to say about this. He always loves to tie it into these kind of Freudian theories. So he says that the girl hitchhiking allows herself to be picked up by this male stranger. Oh, no. And runs a risk of losing her virtue. So she's picked up with big scare quotes, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes stories should leave a wet spot or a blood spot. Oh. Of course, referencing the loss of virginal blood Ugh. and that the car and of course it's in the back of a car oh. which is where kids are you know doing the making nasty making wet spots and blood spots and things exactly yeah the case this girl picked up is never able to kind of find her way home again she loses her chastity and is punished for all eternity by trying desperately to get back to the sanctity of home and with all of its associations of family values you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say it. Dundee's needs to calm the fuck down. I mean, like, really? Like, how do you get sex out of this story? This particular story. I mean, like, most times, yeah. But... Yeah, like, the hook. It's not hard. Phallic. Easy. Penetration. This, it's interesting that he's able to pull... Freud little- out of his hat? I would love to see how he connects the Chihuahua dog urban legend <laughs> to Freudian theory. I'm sure there's something. Yeah, yeah. it's probably about like uh, STDs. Oh God, you're probably right. <laughs> and to add fuel to the fire, because that's what we do. Another folklorist, Bennett, talks about that white party dress that she's in, symbolizing you know innocence, and that she died between her youthful virginity. And adult sexuality. Hey, well, I have to tell you, I think Dundee's is sort of reaching, but he's entitled to do that because he is sort of the expert on reading folklore as Freud. But maybe there's something to the idea of women who are caught between childhood and adulthood not being able to go home again. I think there is some validity to that. No, I agree. I think that that part of the cautionary tale has some validity has some truth to it and i think it's more about an uncompleted journey you know they weren't fully in one place or the other they were caught in this transient state which is 
why I think the mode of transport figures in so heavily to these stories. It's not someone coming to ask and borrow a cup of sugar. It's not someone knocking on your door at home. It's someone who's caught in the in-between, between two destinations, two fixed points, childhood and adulthood. And a lot of times in our society, we do conflate that with sexuality, but I don't think that it necessarily has to be. My other question about this, my other like unresolved issue with the story, is that I feel like it's geared toward men. I feel like we're meant to empathize with the male driver to a much greater extent than we are the female passenger. Right, who you identify with in the story is the driver. That's the person... Like, you're not going to find yourself a ghost hitchhiker, more than likely, but you might pick one up. And that's where I think that the the meaning of the tale is somewhat muddled, and why I think a lot of people get caught up in the, the female symbolism, I guess, when they shouldn't. I think that if we're really to look at the way the story is told and look at the way it's been structured, we're asked to look at it from the boy's perspective, which is very uncommon in folklore. Most of the time... These old wives' tales, as we call them, are handed down from a more maternal lineage. But this, the anonymity of it, is one of the key factors. The idea that it could happen to anyone, the sort of remove between the party we're meant to empathize with and the supernatural figure. Right, but you can also see how one can identify with the backstory of the hitchhiker of the female ghost who is just trying to go to a dance or is trying to play the adult for the night and is taken down short in her, uh, taken down early in her life. I think that's the most emotionally resonant part of the story, without a doubt. And maybe we're just being asked to witness that. So this has evolved over the years, right? Like it's evolved from chariots to uh, to horses, which we didn't talk about. Some really interesting older folklore that has been tied to this. In the Navajo tradition, there is a spirit, and it's part of your soul, or your spirit. It's the Shidi, and that's the evil part of the spirit of a dead person. So when you die, that part is released, and it is like really opening a Pandora's box. It's what causes illness and disharmony in the world. Right, so literally the root of all evil, and it's the bad part of man. These spirits would appear and disappear without warning, and they were even believed to jump onto horses behind their riders. So, sort of a bamboozling, hitchhiking spirit. And there are lots of other versions of this, such as a woman that would hire a coach, Mm -hmm. a horse and buggy, on the night of Holy Thursday to attend various churches and masses. After, she asked to be dropped off at a cemetery, but says she has no money, so she writes an address down on paper and assures the driver that he'll get his money. How would that go over with an Uber driver? Yeah, I don't think they would like that very much. Yeah. And whenever the Uber driver, I mean chariot driver, goes up you to the coach house... coach driver. Coach driver goes up to the house the next day, he finds that the woman has been dead <gasps> for a year. <gasps> So you can definitely see the connection and why people say this might really be an, not a true urban legend because it's linked to this old folklore that has been around for centuries. So we have evolved from chariots to horses to horse and buggy to cars. So what's the modern incarnation of this? Like, What do you think we're going to be hearing about you know, on, on the pages of Reddit? And like, I really don't know. I have a really bad idea. Oh, great. 
<clears throat> New creepy pasta. So I have two. In fact, I have two really bad ideas. I know that's hard to believe, but okay. So one of them is the Uber driver. Great. Yeah, it's gonna happen. We're gonna start seeing Uber drivers reporting vanishing clientele, etc. Do ghosts have iPhones? Apparently, modern ghosts. Hipster like, ghost. Hipster ghost. Yes. Other one that I think we might start hearing about is like internet catfishing where they find out that the person they've been talking with online is a ghost. They were died a year ago and were killed by someone they met on OkCupid. OkCupid is way more credible than that. We're talking like farmers only meetings or something. Like conservatives only? ChristianMingle.com. That's more likely. So those are my two theories about where the legend is going in the future. So I also think another reason that this gained so much popularity over the years was the popularity of hitchhiking. Right, it had a heyday. It really did. And <clears throat> and so it is another old wives' tale mm-hmm. that one should not be hitchhiking because it's extremely dangerous. I kind of, I'm okay with people not hitchhiking. I do think it's dangerous. Yeah, and I don't think that it is necessarily a safe thing to do. But just like some of the other scary stories that we've talked about in the past, when you look at the numbers, it just doesn't hold up. Right, like, you shouldn't go out with anyone you meet online. Exactly. How many people do you know that have met online? (laughs) So from 1979 to 2009, there were 675 reported victims of sexual assault and murder along the interstate highways. And most of those being murder. Okay. And well, yeah, we don't want 675 people to be murdered. When you extrapolate that out to the amount of people that are killed from other things such as walking down the street, falling, things like that. It's not a very big number. I can see where you're getting your conclusion and, like, why you're saying that. But I want to know, since the rates of hitchhiking have dropped, what percentage of hitchhikers that number represents? Like, is that all old data? Or is it only, I don't know, 6,000 people hitchhiked and 600 died? You know, so is it 10%? Is it, like, I think that it doesn't necessarily negate the date. I I don't know. I just, I think hitchhiking's stupid. Sorry. Call an Uber. Well, there was, but there was a study done in 1974, kind of during the heyday of hitchhiking, by the state of California, looking at the safety of hitchhikers. How did that go? So hitchhikers were involved in 0.26% of accidents and 0.63% of crimes in California during that period. That seems significant to me. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned California around that time. All right, why would they be so interested in studying this at the, in the 70s? Well, there were a lot of high-profile murder cases in which the victims were female hitchhikers that took place in California between 1971 and 1974. So when the study was done. At one point, The town of Santa Rosa, California, had been called the murder capital of the world. And it kind of was. At one point, they had three active serial killers. One was a mass murderer, to be fair. He was not a true serial killer, if we want to get into the semantics of it. The other one was a spree killer who believed he had to kill 13 people in order to stop earthquakes. At least he was trying to provide a public service. Yes, I mean, like, we should all be thanking this guy. But he didn't make his target of 13 victims, and the world didn't end. So maybe, then again... No, thank you. Wasn't there a big earthquake in the 80s in San Francisco? I don't think the time delay was supposed to be that long. I don't know. Like, he was trying to get it done before a certain date, 
I think we would have heard more about it on the date. They'd read it on the Mayan calendar. Well, one of those victims of the spree killer was a female hitchhiker. The one that's most relevant to the story is Edmund Emile Kemper III was a man who, at the age of 15, shot his grandmother. And when the police came to apprehend him, he said he just wanted to see what it would feel like to shoot grandma. Sounds like a good start. Yeah, he was 15 at the time. He was At that time, he was only 6'4". And 160 pounds, but he was staying with his grandparents because his mother was such a difficult person to live with, he claimed. He'd run away to live with his father. That didn't pan out, so he went to live with his paternal grandparents. And during this time, he got irritated with his grandmother, and he shot her once from the front and twice in the back, so overkill. And then when his grandfather returned home, he killed him too because he knew he was going to be really upset when he realized what he had done to grandma. Didn't want to get grounded. He didn't want to get grounded. But then he called his mom and said, Hey, Mom, I just killed Grandma. And she's like, Well, what are you going to do about it? He says, Well, I don't know. I was calling to ask you. And she says, You should call the cops. And so he says, Okay. And hangs up and calls the cops and goes and sits out on the front porch and waits for them. So he actually called the cops. Yes. At least he listens to his mother. Well, his best friend is his mother. So, at the tender age of 15, Ed is put in a mental facility, as one probably should be, if they shoot grandma to see what it feels like. And during that time, they discovered that he's actually had a lifelong pathology that would be associated with a psychopathic killer. Even though he's only 15, he already has the history of, that shows up in a lot of serial killers. But you have to remember, this is not well documented at this point. We don't have things like the trifecta where it's like arson bedwetting and killing animals or whatever we don't have those quick go-tos in our mind right but it is important to say that all people with psychopathy do have symptoms as a child yes it does not develop when you're 30 but we don't know this yet we haven't studied it that extensively so he goes into a mental facility and they find out that things like he buried one of the cats alive at his home and going out in the backyard and dug it up and brought the body in and played with it for a while when he was a kid. They also find out that one of his favorite things to do is decapitate his sister's dolls. Don't all kids do that? No. Did you do that? No. Did you do that? No. Then no, not all kids do that. The kid on Toy Story did it? No. Yeah, we all saw how he turned out. If you haven't seen how he turns out, go watch Toy Story 3. Kemper goes in and he's tested for various disorders. He's given an IQ test. It turns out that he's actually a really smart guy. His Q is like 136, I believe. And they come in and tell him, hey, Ed, you're smart. And he says, in an interview, he's like, I say, oh, boy, that's good news. Which just struck me as so funny. And you know what? Let's talk about how he looks. He's a very unassuming guy. He is very tall. He's a giant. But he still looks like a gentle giant. Yeah, he does. Now, that's true. He has like a soft chin. And he has usually kept a mustache and wears glasses and has, like, floppy hair and just looks like... He's very well-spoken. He Well, he's very intelligent. Um, yeah, we'll definitely post some links on Twitter to his interviews. I think he's as interested in understanding his psychology as psychiatrists are. And so he would talk a lot about the things he did and why he did them to anyone who would listen. Even Cosmo. He gave an interview to Cosmo. 27 tips to really turn your man on. Oh, And an interview with Edmund Kemper. Okay, so during his time at the psych hospital between the ages of 15 and 21, he eventually worked his way into the good graces of the doctors. 
and was an assistant in giving psychological tests to other inmates. He would take the test to photocopy or file or whatever, and he'd pull them out and look over and see what the doctors had noted about discrepancies or specific signs that alerted them to various psychological disorders. And being the smart kid he was, he put together how he needed to conduct himself in order to convince the doctors that he was okay. So in calculating this facade, he proved to be very successful and was released when he was 21. Wow, so he's a really intelligent guy. Really calculating, really intelligent guy. So he was released into the care of his mother, which every psychiatrist who had interviewed him had said, not the best plan. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. They told him things like, you don't even need to send her a Christmas present. Stay away from your mother. She's a trigger for you. Just stay away from your mother. Right, so their relationship was not good. No, it was not good. So I'm guessing there was some Jerry Springer stuff going on here. Like, she, from what I understand, she was not, like, sexually or physically abusive. It sounds like she was just naggy. It sounds like nagging, which my kid is probably going to murder me one day. But anyway. <laughs> so he's released to the care of his mother. And he continues to fantasize about the things that interested him as a child. And now he's 6'9". He weighs 300 pounds. And he has a driver's license. And a legally obtained weapon, which just sounds like it's going to go so well for society. And it does. Over the next two years, he abducts a total of six female hitchhikers from around the university in that area. And he systematically murders all of them. Now, he did pick up women and let them go when he was in a good mood. Now, if he was in a bad mood, if he had just had a fight with his mother, there was no way they were getting away. So after the attacks by the spree killer and his first two victims, who were a pair of girls that he abducted and strangled and stabbed to death, a bulletin went out from the police cautioning women against hitchhiking, saying that's probably not the best plan. And they were very careful to tell them, if you need a ride, you should only accept rides from people that have a university sticker on their car, which is really good advice. But, unfortunately for the victims of Edmund Kemper, who had listened to the warnings, his mother worked at the university, and he drove her car, which... Had a university sticker? That's the thing. Was there any other ways he was able to get women into his car? Well, he was very practiced at the art of convincing women to get in his car. He practiced that aspect of his ritual for a long time before he ever became homicidal. He noticed when they would get in the car and when they wouldn't and altered his patterns of behavior accordingly. He even had a specific pair of glasses that he wore when he went out cruising for women that made him look more trustworthy. Yeah, so this is where, while he's a big guy, his kind of gentle looks definitely play in his favor. Right, and he would play it like he wasn't sure he had time to give him a ride and didn't know, and he'd look at his watch and act impatient and The more impatient he acted, the more they fought to get in the car. So he actually used reverse psychology. Effectively. He says that with one victim, he accidentally locked himself out of the car while she was still in the car, with the car running. After he had kind of threatened her, been aggressive, he'd gotten out of the car to go get something out of the trunk and locked himself out, and she let him back in. So once he picked up these women, what did he do? The first two victims... He said he got in such a tizzy that he forgot he had a gun. 
which he did, and mucked it up, I guess. He didn't do what he wanted to do. He strangled them and stabbed them, and he didn't like that at all. In interviews, he'll be like, I never hit a woman. And then later, he would shoot them, and he would put them in the trunk while they were dying and drive home with the bodies, and then he would systematically dismember the bodies, decapitating them and cutting them into more manageable chunks, and then he would drive up and down the highway, discarding pieces of the body in various locations as he drove. But he kept their heads. Serial killer mementos. Yeah. Also just, you know, nice to have someone to talk to, or, you know, force fellatio on, which he did. He was a little bit of a cannibal and a little bit of a necrophiliac. So he ate them? A little. It wasn't his main thing. I think he just tried it out to see how it went. He tried to cook a little? He tried to cook a little. I think it was more that. It was more American Psycho. Like, I tried to cook a little. I didn't know what else to do. I had all these bodies. I don't think he was into the cannibalism so much. He really just liked to keep the heads. He would, like, sleep with the heads. And, like, he'd carry them around in bags. So it sounds like he was projecting a lot of his aggression towards his mother onto these women. He actually says in interviews, I think I was killing my mother over and over again. Did he ever do anything to his mother? Well, of course he did. Eventually, he claims that he went out looking for hitchhikers, and he found two young women, and it was a complete repeat of his first kill. They looked like them. They were the same heights. One was blonde, one was brunette. They were wearing the same type of clothing. And he says he looked over at them and realized that they did not deserve to die. And he let him go. And that night he went home. So he walked in once he saw, he knew that his mother had come in and gone to bed. And she was reading a paperback book. And she looks at him and she's kind of (sighs) like, she goes, I guess you want to sit up and talk all night. And he says, no, good night, mom. And bashes her to death with a hammer. Oh, good. And then he dismembers her and he cuts her head off. He throws darts at her head, though. He doesn't talk to it or anything. Maybe my favorite, like, I cannot believe this actually happened. He put her vocal cords down the garbage disposal. Apropos. There's no symbolism there. Let's let Dundee's analyze this. But then he thinks, oh shit, huh, I am a convicted killer. I killed my grandmother. I've now killed my mother in her home. I've got to do something. So he calls his mom's best friend over and strangles her and drops her near the door. Strangles her with his bare hands, by the way. What was he trying to do? He was trying to make it look like a robbery. There's actually one of the other girls, he strangled her by just putting his hand over her face. Like, that's how big this guy was. She was 15, she was like 5'2", a little girl. And he was able to just cover her nose and mouth effectively and kill her that way, which is just scary, 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 scary. Production notes, Sam is (laughs) 5'2". So he kills his mom, he kills her friend Sarah, and then he goes and gets in the car and starts driving. Like, he's going to go get away. But after he, like, thinks it over and he's like, I've, he's like, I've lived out my ultimate fantasy. I think I killed the thing that was plaguing me. He's like, I don't want to kill anymore. And I can't just go on and, like, assume a new identity or do a new, you know, start a new life. What am I going to do? He's like, well, I guess I'll just stop. And he stopped and moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming? No, he stopped and called the cops. Oh, that's better. From a payphone. First, his cop friends, who all drank with him regularly. So he had cop friends like Gacy. Yeah, no, but they weren't tracking him. Like, they had no reason to suspect him of anything. They called him Big Ed. Um, He drank at a place called the Jury Room, where, like, local law enforcement and attorneys would go after work. 
and he would never bring up the case. He said that he's seen too many episodes of crime shows to do that. It was stupid. So he would go and sit and listen to them talk and kind of find out where they were on the investigation. And he calls him and he's like, hey, this is Ed. And they're like, hey, Big Ed. And he's like, what's up? Um, By the way, I just murdered my mom and her pal. And I killed six girls. Do you Snapchat them pictures? No, he was, he was like in Utah or Colorado or somewhere by this point. Like he's gone. He's like, but I did this. And they were like, (laughs) good story, bro. Like they didn't believe him. And he's like, go to the house and go see what I've done. And they're like, okay, we'll send somebody out there. And so like they decided they probably better look into it and keep him on the phone. But they genuinely don't think they're going to find anything. So they go to his home. And, yeah, sure enough, he did all the things that he said he did. And the local law enforcement where he is comes and picks him up. They hold him. Cops from Santa Cruz come get him from there. And while he's in the backseat, he does a full rundown of every murder that he committed. And just tells them every detail he can think of. And they finally kind of start to believe him. Eventually, he takes cops out, shows them where all the body parts are. And confesses, pleads guilty, and sentenced to life in prison in California. And lucky for us, he is still alive. And doing interviews. Like crazy. I think if you wanted to write him, he would probably write you back if you're that kid. Just saying. There are so many interviews you can look up on YouTube with him. And it's really chilling to watch how calmly he talks about these murders and how he did it. And he talks about how he lured the women in. But at the same time, like, I've watched a lot of serial killer interviews, which I'm hating as it leaves my mouth, but it's true. I've watched a lot of serial killer interviews, and it's not Richard Ramirez bravado. It's not Ted Bundy, ha, ha, ha. It's not John Wayne Gacy, fuck you guys. It's like, I think he actually feels bad. He seems very introspective. Yeah, and it's weird. But so if Edwin Kemper, the 6'9", 300-pound killer giant in the car with the door handle on the passenger side rigged so it won't open from the inside, by the way, isn't enough to scare young women hitchhiking in the California area. There's another string of killings in Santa Rosa, California that were happening concurrently in which seven female hitchhikers were murdered that are all linked and um, people have speculated that they're possibly the work of Ted Bundy who never took credit for them or that they might have potentially been the victims of the Zodiac Killer after he said that he would no longer leave his signature. There are some ties to a Zodiac suspect named Arthur Lee Allen, who was disproven as the Zodiac Killer, but was suspicious enough that I think that he may have had something to do with these seven murders of seven female hitchhikers, because he was a student studying chipmunks. What else would a pathological serial killer study. <laughs> he was studying chipmunks and they found chipmunk hairs on the bodies. Maybe I know, they, it sounds like I'm making it up, but I swear to God, it's true. Maybe they were killed by rabid chipmunks. Uh, yes, they were hogtied. Literally, hogtied by chipmunks. So, chipmunk hairs, Arthur Lee Allen, I don't know, but two hours away at the same point in history as Edmund Kemper and uh, Spree Killer... This guy is killing hitchhikers as well. And they think there may be as many as 11 victims linked. But only seven have been positively attributed to this one killer. 
So they really are at risk. It's an at-risk population. I'm sorry. I, I just think that's too significant, especially in like 1971 through 74, to say that it's not dangerous to get in the car with somebody. No, I would never hitchhike, although I have. Uh, have you really hitchhiked? The guy in Arkansas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't hitchhike. It's stupid. It truly, literally was a life and death situation. But anyway, <laughs> I do think it's, of course, dangerous. Especially when you have all these serial, serial killers lurking around. One hitchhiking story that I probably completely randomly linked to the Vanishing Hitchhiker story is the Orange Sock Killer. Okay, actually, I like this story, and I think I think I know exactly what you think of the Vanishing Hitchhiker when you think of it. But go ahead, go ahead. Right, and so it took place in Colorado in 1982, and so near Breckenridge, a lot of people hitchhiked because it's a really safe place. And on January 6th, 29-year-old Bobby Joe Oberholzer called her husband up and let him know that she was going to be out with some friends and she'd get a ride home. Problem was. Bobby never made it home. And so her husband went searching for her the next morning and found his wife's body in a remote field. She had been shot to death and she had an orange sock that did not belong to her found near her body. That is peculiar. So an odd little article of clothing left. And so six months later, another body was found. Mm-hmm. The 21-year-old Annette K. Schnee. And she was discovered in a wooded area 13 miles from where Bobby was found. She'd been sexually assaulted and was shot. She also was wearing the matching orange sock. But only one. So, did not take much for the police to connect these two. Yeah. And realized that they were both hitchhiking and were both killed on the same night. This is a very brazen killer. Like somebody that's that bold to take two women in two separate occasions on the same night. Right, and to add even a little more mystery to this, it's never been solved. But her husband, Jeff Oberholzer, was considered a suspect in the killings. Because just by happenstance... He had picked up the other girl while she was hitchhiking several months prior and had given her his business card. And it was found in Annette's wallet. He has been cleared of charges, but what are the chances? So to me, there are two reasons I think that you might think of this story when you think of vanishing hitchhikers. First of all, you have that strange article of clothing, that phantom article of clothing showing up. So it's out of place with Bobby Joe because she has socks already and here's this extra sock and that's weird and then you discover a body later and it's back it's just the one sock it's back like I mean obviously they're a pair but you know it has to seem like it's put there and then the other thing is that if we identify with Jeff Olberholzer the hitchhiker that he picked up did vanish right he was helping her out and and then then she disappeared and there was something returned of his in a really weird way right like his business card it's almost like the jacket again where it's like he gave her thing and like to prove that it's the same girl from that experience or it shows up later right they're linked 
Okay, so I think like after looking at those three different cases of killers who preyed upon female hitchhikers, it's really easy or tempting maybe to say that maybe the men were inspired by the legend of the vanishing hitchhiker. I don't know about that. I think these men were probably inspired by their own psychopathy, their own deviancy. Yes. I think that people who want to tie it up in a neat little bow and maybe take it, make an easy conclusion would say that, like, oh, the women are portrayed as non-human and it gives men license to prey upon them. But I think that's actually pretty bass backwards. I think that, you know, in some cases with a legend, you get to meet the girl's parents and you get an idea of where she comes from and what she wanted and things like that. Right, so they're real people. They're not just your stand-in, like, token female and damsel in distress. Right. Like, I think that they're one of the more well fleshed out characters in urban legends like you fleshed out ghost but i'm but i'm sorry right like i think that they are you know pretty well realized they have wants and they have a sense of place and you know a, a tragic story i think they're actually pretty sympathetic characters and then you know in some cases as you were reporting there are real women linked to the idea of the vanishing hitchhiker. Right, and I think that's because this character is so relatable. It's not that hard to imagine that girl you knew in your high school class, that if there were something real like vanishing hitchhikers and ghosts, that that could be them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that this story is unique in that it gives us a lot of empathy for that character and that's something we don't get with these killers who prey on that population it makes us maybe hate them more right that story is about the killer more times than about the victims absolutely so i think that you know to conclude that there's any relationship between these men's motives and this legend is just ludicrous i mean it's not like hitchhikers actually vanish yeah it's just a story